Captain Joel Hood from the Center for Law and Military Operations, that's CLAMO. I'm here with Lieutenant Commander Tyler Stutton, U.S. Coast Guard representative at CLAMO. Morning. And Professor Jack Beard, Associate Professor of Law and Director, Space, Cyber, and Telecom Law Program at the University of Nebraska College of Law. Today, we're in Colorado Springs at the U.S. Spacecom Legal Conference. And I think you can hear some of the networking going on in the background. Yep, this is an incredible opportunity. If you're a judge advocate in touch space law, consider attending next year's conference in person or online. Professor Beard, you just mentioned that it seems to be improving year over year significantly. Yes, we're getting more and more of the, the students who've uh, got their LLMs in space law and students and JAGs from all over the country. And this is really the place where they're coming together to network and learn and talk. It's a great event. And have you been coming every year, sir? This is its uh, third rendition, and I've been here since the first one. I was a keynote speaker last year, uh, but it is really the only event like, uh, like it in the country for space law. Can you give us, sir, an, an overview of your career, how you ended up in space law, and your experience with the military as well? Well, first, I just have to say that everyone out there in the JAG Corps, you've picked the right field. It is a fantastic career that leads in a whole lot of great directions, not just while you're in the military, but after you've left the military as well. Um, I, uh, I graduated from uh, Georgetown in the ROTC uh, program as a Russian and international affairs major. I took a deferral uh, from doing my active duty to uh, University of Michigan. Then I went off to join the JAG Corps and had a lot of great assignments um, in, in the JAG Corps. And then after serving my uh, four years, uh, I immediately converted to reserve service. Uh, started working the Secretary of the Army's office. Uh, eventually made my way to DOD General Counsel, the Secretary of Defense's office. Um, all that time I stayed as a reserve officer in the JAG Corps. And, uh, it was great for me because uh, I was in the Pentagon and my military job was as the chief of the international law section of the International Law and Operations Division of the Army JAG. And then I was in DOD General Counsel. And sometimes I'd do, go on active duty and I'd write memos to myself back in the Office <laughs> of Secretary of Business. And then I'd answer them when I was back in a few weeks. Um, so I got, I got the best of all these different worlds. Uh, I got to see the, the entire world negotiating agreements for the Defense Department. I was the Secretary of Defense's main guy for international agreements, and I got to see everything JAGs do all over the world, and uh, then I was frequently called on to active duty. And or, as the years have gone by, uh, I, my commitment to the JAG Corps and what the uh, JAG opportunity presents is just boundless. So now at Nebraska, I'm teaching LLM students who are JAG officers of different services as they come and get an LLM in space and cyber law. There's some misconceptions about space law, and yes. I want to talk about those. Many. Right. One of the ones, Joel and I both represent sea services, and we've heard so many times over the years the attempts to analogize yes. regulation of space to regula regulation yes. of maritime space. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't Why? go there. Why should we Don't go there? Don't go there. Well, okay, uh, to begin with, you know, space is different than, say, for instance, cyber. Cyber is kind of the Wild West. Space has a treaty written in 1967 
and it's one of the very few, or concluded then, one of the very few international agreements where all of our near-peer adversaries are parties to, the Chinese and Russians, everybody operating in space is a part of this treaty. This is, this is where everything begins, and that treaty is short and sweet. It's 2,200 words, and it was designed for the future. It was a roadmap. You've got to know that thing inside and outside. So that's, that's the interesting little framework that says that. Now, where's, where's maritime fit in this? Well, first off, maritime has had centuries to evolve, right? Centuries. So you've got all of these intricacies about armed conflict on the oceans and neutrality on the oceans and all the different regimes for fishing and exclusive economic zones and all the stuff that a good naval officer, a good naval JAG knows, right? But it's really not useful for space law in a lot of important ways. I will give you this. There's one place that seems to have more relevance than any, and that's the concept of due regard. Because the Outer Space Treaty has a due regard provision. It hasn't been very well applied or understood yet because we are just beginning to become so congested in space. Maritime experience is extensive in what due regard means and so forth. But that's about where it ends. Just think about it. First off, there are these objects floating around in space don't have any nationality. They don't have a flag. All the stuff about flag vessels and battleships and all that stuff, it's irrelevant because space law has all these legal connections to that object. It's registered in a state. It's launched by a state. It has nationality of the corporation that may own it. Who knows who owns it? All these different legal connections make it a much more difficult thing than the easy business of saying this flag state needs to do this. And then military object? There's no obligation to mark anything in space. All the things in maritime law that involve like how you identify a government vessel or a battleship, it's gone. It's nowhere. Those things don't work. And, and, and that's, it, in fact, as far as registration is concerned, you don't even have to say it's a military object. I mean, in fact, the Chinese, unfortunately, the Americans too, usually register many of their military satellites for research purposes. You know? yeah. so, so they're not being clear about that. So you don't have those things going. And then also think about maritime law and all the things that a, a naval officer, uh, and a JAG officer in particular, needs to understand about boundaries about the exclusive economic zone, about the contiguous zone, about the area over the territorial sea, about innocent passage, about the high seas, all these different things, they have no corresponding relationship to space because there's no territory, there's none of those lines. The Russians would like there to be lines. They're always pushing for some area below space that they'd like to control over their, uh, over their land mass. So like, the fact that there's no territory and that there's no ships and that these connections are that you rely on in maritime law to, to do things, it's, it's not there. And then the other thing, of course, is that the maritime lawyer has the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Right. And it's got a lot of stuff worked out about like extracting uh, resources from the ocean. And so the naval officer knows generally as they go through some area of the oceans, knows the regime about fishing, knows the regime about mineral resource extraction, knows when the Chinese ship is going around whether they can be doing what they're doing or not. Hey, in space, it's truly, uh, you're truly in an area where this idea of using space resources is really contested. The U.S. has a view. Uh, other countries have their view. 
Um, but that's where like you've got to just step back and say, I need to learn a whole new regime here and be aware of all the areas that aren't settled and the areas that are. So, you know, maritime law is not a waste of time, but it's, it, you need to step back from it and only use the pieces of it that are most analogous, right? Right, that fit the domain. So is the Womera Manual trying to fill that gap? Well, well, see, here's the wonderful thing that makes a, a Woomer Manual you, you named after this launching site in uh, Australia because two um, uh, Australian universities are two of the four founders, University of Nebraska and Exeter, the other two. Um, remember that you heard at this conference people saying, well, like, what is an envoy of mankind? What's the right? What's an astronaut? What's a space flight participant? How do we decide these things? Well, instead of having a bunch of experts who are professors that are, you know, pontificating and theorizing and speculating, and here's my view, and you should follow it because I'm me and I'm important, and I, it it eschews any approach of of taking uh, these academics' views of what the law should be, and it focuses exclusively on what states, the the, the entities that make international law, are doing and have done. Now that begins with the negotiating history of the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, you know, I've heard speakers here at the conference, how do we answer some of these questions? The first place to look in interpreting a treaty is going to be, after you look at the text, you need to go to the preparatory work. It's not like contract law. And that's the, the don't, don't, listeners out there, don't you start telling me contract law is the way you work on treaties, because the treaties have their own Bible about interpretation. That's what I, I did in my life in the Pentagon. But you go to the you go to the preparatory work and you see the Russians inserted that phrase about envoy of mankind. And during the discussion, some of the countries were saying, whoa, 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 what does that mean? Does that mean like a diplomatic passport or something? And at the end of it, the, the Russians said, no, 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 it's just, it's just a term. It basically is defined by what's in Article 5. And, you know, the best space law writers, like there's a he, wonderful writer, Ben Chen, they focus on the they focus on the preparatory, and his review of it was simple. It's like this: this clause doesn't mean, you know, anything special beyond Article Five, because you've got to figure that stuff out if we do have an armed conflict about how the law of armed conflict applies. So, Woomera is organized in three parts based on state practice. Treaties get interpreted also by the way the countries actually implement them. And if that begins to start showing an agreement about the terms, you need to look really carefully, carefully at state practice. I would rather know how Germany and Moldova and whoever are, are interpreting a clause in the Outer Space Treaty than Professor so-and-so, right? right? So that's what this document does in three different phases. Space law and peacetime, space law in times of stress and tension, and space law during an armed conflict. And in those three categories, we're looking at what states are doing and have done, and then as a really amazing wonderful thing that makes this product really unique. The Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Dutch Ministry of Defense agreed to circulate a draft of the manual to the world, sent it out to all the foreign ministries and had them assemble in The Hague this summer where we went through three days of them pounding away on the manuscript. Like, you know, wow. this isn't what we think international law is right now. Here's what we're doing. Uh, and then they also submitted written comments. So for the last year of my life, that's been what I've been doing. Um, to make this document shaped by state practice. So when you pick it up, you're reading something that states have, are, have contributed to because that's 
really the best place to determine what the law is and what its contours are for its future and its development. So that's, that's been a really informative experience. Uh, they, and they got into arguments and you know, the, the places where there is, like on resource extraction, where there is a disagreement, the manual needs to state that. And where there's uncertainty, and you need to state that too. But where you've got a, a growing practice and it's also founded in the preparatory work of the treaty, you need to explain that too. So that's what the experts were in charge of working on on this, uh, and not each person's opinion about what the best way to develop space is. So it follows in the uh, it follows other manuals, uh, like you'd mentioned San Remo and, and Tallinn, uh, but it has it has a little bit different take because it has to be about the implementation of this treaty and state practice. Um, we're not in a position where we we just don't have any framework to approach it yet. So. That's, that's, and it, hopefully it'll be out within some months, I don't know how long. I, my master on this is Oxford University Press, and I, I certainly don't control them. Well, I'm, I'm curious what are the resources um, for budding judge advocates that are going to their first assignment where they're going to touch space law, what would you recommend that they read or review? Well, I hope by the time people listening to this go to serve, they'll have the Woomer Manual at their desk. Um, but uh, again, I, sometime over the next year, uh, I don't know. I, I'm a big uh, fan at some point in your career, and I did this in mine, uh, going out and getting an LLM just to, and, and not, it's not going to change your life in terms of, wow, now, now I'm eligible for this and that and this and that, but going out and getting some continuing education, um, because we all know that when you, when you leave college, you begin to appreciate, oh my gosh, that was fun to be back there talking, thinking, drinking, you know, doing the things <laughs> you do in college. And, and then you go into a job, and here's your job, and you're going to do conflict of interest on this thing, and the general needs this, and that's all you're working on for a while. And that's, that's fine. You, everybody gets put. I didn't like contracting law, but I did it, and I ended up eventually appreciating that I understood a lot of things people wanted to do in contract didn't work, so I, 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 but I didn't like doing it at the time. Anyway, you know, you in these little trenches that you work on, and it's good to get out and hear people and read things and understand the developments you don't have a chance to do when you're in that spot, right? So things you can do to open that up, I mean, as I noted, uh, I have different people in different levels of their career coming out to get uh, online work with, with our university, and the others are available too. So, you know, that ends up being one thing. As far as other, as far as other texts, you know, um, it's amazing so little has been written about military activities in space. Part of that is because there's a kind of a cabal out there that's always disliked the idea of the military even being in space. And it's been a group that's dominated a lot of publishing um, with the idea that, hey, in the early 60s there were people who said peaceful purposes means no military in space. Well, that's never been the truth and that's not what happened in the Outer Space Treaty. But there's a, a reluctance to, to write and work in this area, and especially at the United Nations, you see all these countries, oh, we don't want to talk about the law of armed conflict in space, because that would legitimize the law of armed conflict in space. Now, that's hilarious from the, from the perspective, what's the purpose of the law of armed conflict? One of the purposes, one of the primary purposes is to protect the civilian population, right? Um, but, but they've eschewed talking about it, you know, say, well, we're above that. Um, but recently at this open-ended working group at the UN, they were talking about better behavior in space and, 
and uh, the Wilmer Manual manuscript was mentioned. And for the first time ever, the Chinese government, they've always just said they'll never talk about the law of armed conflict because they're against legitimizing the law of armed conflict. They actually came out and talked about the Wilmer Manual and criticized it, which made me happy. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, all these complicated things, how do we settle? I said, well, you should read the book. Um, uh, but, but so you've got these opportunities out there um, now to be reading on some military matters in space, but there's not a whole lot of literature, unfortunately, uh, to, to turn to. Uh, but anyway, go on. I, I've talked too long. No, that was, that was a great, great answer, so we appreciate it. And, and like you said, there are programs available for LLMs, and, and there, there is a body of law, but it's, it's not as big as you would hope or yeah. think it would be. Right. That's all we have for now. Catch Clamo on the Quill and Sword again the first Friday of next month and other departments from the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School throughout each month. The views expressed or implied on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States Army JAG Corps or other organizations with which the participants are associated or by whom they are employed.